0: This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. It's Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red Channel. I'm Guy Clark. Welcome along. Klopp's midfield machine misfires on day one, with Darwin doing the damage off the bench. We'll recap the visit to the cottage. We'll analyze the red spurning transfer conundrum. Before looking ahead to Monday's visit of Crystal Palace to rule an eye over all of that, crunch the numbers and delve into the data, it's a pleasure as ever to be joined by Josh Williams. Josh, I hope that you're well and uh, the first week of the new season has treated you well.
1: Well, not not necessarily. I mean, if you look at Liverpool, you know, that was a, a bit of a shock, shock results, shock performance as well, which I'm sure we'll get into. But uh, if you're very to fantasy football, then yeah, I'm I'm doing okay. Solid start, uh, steady after blocks.
0: Yeah, anything anything but but me. I I've been left behind <laughs> already. Let's before we get into to the Liverpool action. Let's quickly talk about our our fantasy football league. We have set it up. We've got almost 500 of you in there. 483 to be precise. And Josh, after week one, I'm languishing somewhere in. Four hundred and fifty-first, I think, to be precise, is where I am. So, uh, as as one of the expert voices on this panel, um, yeah, n- not a great start.
1: Well, I think it's it stems from the captaincy, mate. You've been you've been led by your Arsenal bias as usual. Yeah. That's not the first time, actually. To be honest, <laughs> looking at guys' teams over the years, you captained Jesus, I think, um, yeah, I which which didn't go down well when you've got the likes of Ailing, Carland, and Salah right there. So, yeah. Um, no sympathy, mate. To be honest,
0: <laughs> no. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking. I'm sticking with my lads, and I have to say that um, a lot of my team. I'll get my excuse in early. A lot of my team had away fixtures, so the the, the Arsenal players did start well on the first night. Bar Gabriel Jesus, but the rest of them uh, away from home, tricky, tricky games. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking home comforts this weekend. Let's see how they do. If there's any. Uh, repairable damage to, to to what they did last week and see if they can uh, prove me right and uh, stay in the team. Otherwise, the changes will be wrong. I don't think there'll be an early wild card, but we will have to to wait and see. If you haven't joined the league but are playing FPL, do get involved. The code that we have is 8S72G1. As I say, we're only 17 short of 500 people. So it'd be great to get it up to that number, which already, Josh, has, has blown us away just how many people are in the league.
1: Yeah, and I forgot. I forgot actually that you can still join after the uh, after the first week. So that's that's a positive. But um, I suppose having so many people in the group, I'd be amazed if if one of us gets anywhere near the top. There's got. I said to Dave last week. There's got to be a few experts in there now. If you, if you look at five hundred people, that's that's a huge league. You know, that's a fair amount of people, and some of them will be crunching the numbers to the nth degree. You know, beyond what we are doing. So um, it's going to be interesting how we all get on. Um, don't Captain Jesus is uh, is the lesson of the first week.
0: Yeah, yeah, lesson lesson well learned for me. But uh, Josh, let's talk about <laughs> talk about the actual action then. Liverpool starting away at Fulham, another newly promoted side to start the season against, but but didn't follow the regular pattern. In the end, held to a draw, and were they lucky to get a draw?
1: Yes, uh, absolutely horrendous is how I'd put it. It was one of the worst performances I've seen from a Klopp-Liverpool team. And what I mean by that, though, is just specific individuals being collectively miles off uh, I don't know what it was. It was kind of unexplainable, to be honest. Uncharacteristic of the players. Um, Klopp said after the game that the attitude was wrong, which is unlike him. I read that he, he didn't hug anyone <laughs> on his way off the pitch, which sounds like a minor narrative, but... When you're talking about Jürgen Klopp, it's, it's not a common theme at all. I don't recall any games where he's, where he's made that decision. So, it was just an all-round really terrible day. Um And it's, it's not a good way to start the season, really.
0: No, definitely not. And I suppose kind of when you do look at it and, and how Liverpool... I know you, you, you were away on holiday through parts of pre-season, but the preparation seemed as though they'd gone quite well. Of course, they had lost to to Leipzig during the uh, sorry to Salzburg during the pre-season but they beat Leipzig very convincingly indeed yes they started against Manchester United in not a great fashion but that was after literally 3 days on the on the training pitch for the the main international players who had come back into the group but it felt as though off the back of the community shield that actually despite finishing later than everyone and, and starting very early indeed this season that Liverpool had managed again to prepare things correctly On the day, though, that really just didn't transpire.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of me wondered whether, you know, have we been drilling this team into the ground to the extent where they're tired? But it it didn't feel like a tired performance. It just felt like lackluster. It it felt like uh, almost a a disinterested performance from certain players. And if you look at the team that Klopp picked, it's probably the team I would have picked. I know there was a bit of controversy around Firmino starting ahead of Nunes. But if you look at Fulham's system, you know Fulham defending a four four two. So if you if you're defending the four four two, that number ten space was is going to be opening up, uh, and Firmino naturally drops into those pockets. I thought it was going to cause problems for them, and I thought Nunes would come on and do exactly what he did in the Community Shield, where he he, he makes use of fresh legs against defenders who were going to be tired, and that kind of happened in a way. But the the initial first hour. Uh, you know, Firmino was miles off it. I thought it was a, a terrible day for Van Dijk, Torent was was miles off here, Jordan Henderson was awful, uh, and just, I just collected, even Salah wasn't, I wouldn't say Salah was bad, he was just extremely quiet for the first hour, like, unusually quiet though, where, I mean, i have to look at his numbers, see how much he touched the ball, but it felt like he barely did, and whenever he did, he'd be coming backwards, he'd be forced backwards into his own half. Part of that, obviously, you need to credit Fulham with that. I thought Fulham were outstanding. If you play anything like that for the rest of the season, they'll do really well. I thought the new lad... um, Paulinho. Yeah, Joao Paulinho from uh, Sporting. I thought he was very, very good. Mitrovic was an absolute handful. The Two full-backs, I thought, were very aggressive, very front-foot. So, you know, part of it's down to the opposition, but when you look at the players Liverpool have got, you just expected Liverpool to be a bit more bold in certain moments, escape uh, the tight pressure behind them in certain moments. Just never really happened up until about the 75th minute when we started to put a bit of pressure onto Fulham.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And one of the real issues for Liverpool was, and watching it back so evident, was Liverpool couldn't get any fluency going, couldn't get the midfield into the game. And a large part of that for me was the inability to to keep the ball and just retain it and keep possession of it. I mean, I've looked through the numbers and in terms of pass completion, the number in the end for Liverpool was just 78.2%, which all of last season, they only had a, a lower pass completion once and that was away at chelsea when jürgen klopp wasn't even on the touchline when they got 74.4% pass completion in that game of course that was a 2-2 draw as well the average yeah i remember that game yeah, season, yeah the, the average for last season was was 83.5% for pass completion i mean i think it was only under 80% on on what looking through the numbers here the the 2-2 draw away at man city the 2-0 home win a uh, 2-0 away win sorry over brighton the 2-2 draw I mentioned against Chelsea, the defeat at Leicester, the draw at Tottenham. And that was it for games where the possession, the pass completion was under 80% for Liverpool. And it feels as though when that midfield doesn't work and can't keep hold of the ball, it's when the game becomes a lot more open, which is what we saw against Fulham.
1: Yeah, and I think that's interesting, that actually, those numbers that you've just picked up on. Because uh, in that game against Chelsea, I distinctly remember that game. And I distinctly remember writing a piece on the back of that specifically in reference to Henderson and James Milner, who both started that day. Um, I think both players on the day, despite playing in central midfield, I think they both posted pass completions beneath 70%, I think. Um, And Liverpool end up with with virtually no control in the game. And, you know, (laughs) it's no shock really, is it, when you think about it? And in this game against Fulham, Milner obviously started on the bench, but Henderson again had another one of those games where he's just he's almost consumed by the chaos. He, he, he's a little bit, um, you know, the tempo that the tempo of the game dictates the way he plays rather than the other way around at times. Um, and I thought I must say, watching the game, I thought Fabinho was equally terrible, and I thought Thiago was, was well off it as well. But then when, when you actually look at the numbers of the game. Thiago, despite being really, really bad, completed 88% of his passes. Fabinho, again, despite being really, really bad, completed 84% of his passes. Henderson, down at just under 72%. So, not quite as bad as his Chelsea performance. But it it does seem that when, when these games happen where the opposition are really, really aggressive, you need to play under pressure, play in tight spaces... Keep the ball on the deck because the ball is permanently bouncing all over the place. It feels like Henderson gets a bit consumed in those games, and you know you can understand why, but it's just it's just a bit of a negative when that when that happens and when everyone looks bad. If you, when you actually look at the the numbers, it, Henderson just looks that bit worse, and that that was the case when we looked at the Chelsea game as well.
0: Yeah, as you say for for the the Fulham game. Henderson just under 72% pass completion rate. I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold was bottom for Liverpool in the end. Only completed 51 of his 85 passes. I mean... That that within the tale there tells you kind of exactly the point we're making where Trent Alexander-Arnold is, is such a key player for Liverpool. in, But more so, it's it's getting those basic passes intercepted and wrong that then, then means that there's no fluency that's built up and, and Liverpool can't get into their stride in the pattern that they so often demonstrate against newly promoted sides or against most sides in the league, home or away, where they do just dominate, albeit perhaps not in the manner that Man City do. But once you start to thread those those shorter passes together and build that fluency, everything else eventually sort of seems to come together for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do tend to give Trent a little bit of license, considering he plays those high high risk, high reward passes almost. So it's a little bit, it feels a little bit different with Trent. But nevertheless, if you I've just looked at last season's numbers and throughout the whole of last season in the Premier League, his lowest pass completion in any game was was the it was sixty. so he's obviously posted 60% in his first game this season against Fulham, which is already worse than any game last season, so it really does capture how off it Liverpool were, I suppose, but I think the issue with Henderson is Henderson, in my opinion, is largely tasked with instigating control in the game and and giving Liverpool a foothold, and, you know, pass completion numbers can, can be deceiving at times, and they don't offer that much value, but I think at the same time, they do offer an insight into the, the level of control a player has over the ball sometimes, and Henderson's ability to keep the ball in this game is really, really low, and I'll be honest, I saw the uh, <laughs> the compilation doing the rounds on Twitter. It's bad. It is awful. I mean, it's it, it's a case of whenever the ball's coming through in, in, in the midfield, it's usually bouncing, and rather than putting his foot on the ball, it's pretty much always a case of Henderson hits that bouncing ball forward towards the opponent's last line and they usually head it just back in the same direction. But a lot of the time it's just Henderson kind of like aimlessly hitting the ball forward. Lofted passes that don't really go anywhere. Um I don't want to be too critical on Henderson as an individual because, you know, he was one of the few who played the full ninety minutes, funnily enough, and it was a collectively horrendous performance from everybody. But yeah, it was it just went a gig day.
0: The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. So we've discussed the lack of control Liverpool had then through the course of the game and how they struggled to to really exert that over Fulham. What about the goals then? Let's analyse the ones that were conceded before we talk about Darwin Nunez and the impact he had coming off the bench. I mean, where are you? Where are you kind of laying? The blame lines in terms of the goals conceded. Obviously, one of them's a penalty and you said Mitrovic was a handful. He obviously got himself two goals, but for the first one, the cross that comes in, maybe more can be done to stop the cross. Maybe the header can actually be stopped as well. But, of course, a, a lot of kind of responsibility has been put at Trent Alexander-Arnold's door again because he's been beaten under a high ball at the back post.
1: Well, I'll be honest, I think that one's a little bit harsh. Um, I don't think he, he paints himself particularly well in the moment. But that is a difficult situation to deal with when it's Alexander Mitrovic who's coming in behind you, who's like 6'3", or or 6'2", or whatever. You know, fair bit of weight on him. (laughs) Great in the air, very aggressive player. And the ball's hanging up in the air as well. So I actually felt a little bit sorry for Trent there, and I think the large majority of fullbacks in that situation would almost not stand a chance. I do think you can look at Robertson and suggest that he should have stopped the cross. And I think I also would, would lay a bit of the blame on Alisson's door. Um, not ma- not many people have talked about Alisson in reference to the goal. But I think he, for, for me, he should save it. Uh, people, long-term listeners of the show will know that I'm usually, I can be quite uh, demanding <laughs> when it comes to goalkeepers. Alisson is absolutely ridiculous, you know, he's, I've got no issues with him whatsoever, but in that moment, for me, he usually steps up, and uh, if Mignolet does that, I, I'm all over him, so I have to do it with Alisson as well, so I think the, that, that was just all-round, again, a, a bad goal, but what I did want to touch on, though, before we touch on and else, is um I've just said Liverpool's performance was horrendous, and all that sort of stuff, right, but what's interesting is if you actually look at the numbers attached to the game, which obviously we do on this show, it doesn't suggest as much. So the expected goals on the day, Liverpool posted 1.9. That's that's really not bad. Um, Liverpool's average last season was 2.2 per, per match. And Liverpool scored two goals from that 1.9, which is exactly in line with what you'd expect. Fulham, if you remove the penalty only generated about 0.6 xG in open play. And that, most of that was was the Micevic header from close range. Um, so I, what I wanted to touch on was, although Liverpool were, were, were miles off here, it, it is really interesting when you actually look at almost what matters in a game, you know, shots at one end compared to shots at the other end. Liverpool still generated more than enough to run out winners at the end of the game, and Fulham only generated enough barely even for one goal, never mind two. So, I'm also on and Jordan, we can actually just kind of like, how bad the Liverpool have to be to to lose? Because, you know, Liverpool ended up nearly winning the game.
0: I I take your point, and that was why I I kind of started by by talking about the the pass completion rate, because it it felt more, as you said there, from, from a Liverpool perspective, it was horrendous in that regard, of Liverpool shooting themselves in the foot with a lack of control, as opposed to not being able to to get out or play because Fulham were all over them. For me, it was a lot of Liverpool's own misgivings that meant that they 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 didn't push the game in the manner that it did. And then that's maybe where you bring in the intangibles of a newly promoted side at home for their first game back in the Premier League. The crowd can maybe get into it, albeit probably not the most raucous of crowds at Craven Cottage. and. And maybe that's, as I say, where where some of those things come into it. Your point about, obviously, Fulham not creating much when they've got someone who is an elite header of the ball in Alexander Mitrovic, a guy who specialises in first-time finishes in a penalty box and doesn't really need much of a sniff at goal. Um, It's kind of, isn't it, situational as to who it is who's having the XG at times. And I know he's not always been a great hit in the Premier League. I think his last season in the division has maybe skewed opinion on him somewhat where he and Scott Parker just blatantly didn't seem to, to see eye to eye in terms of what Parker wanted from a forward and what Mitrovic could offer because the previous time Fulham were in the division and were pretty woeful. He was their saving light. It was just they couldn't get the ball up to him enough whereas in this game they did and there was a couple of times where he turned Van Dyke expertly well he won the penalty of course and that's where then obviously the the frustrations can come in into it for, for Liverpool but obviously whilst Mitrovic shone at one end of the pitch as a, a goal scoring number nine Darwin Nunez came on and offered Liverpool something similar you said you were hoping prior to the game he'd start on the bench come on and do something similar to what he did in the community shield. And I mean the big debate now, and we'll get into talking about the Palace game, is whether he's already in the community shield and now in his first Premier League game off the bench, done enough to already be knocking on the door to be a starter.
1: Yeah, I d I don't really think you can ignore him, to be honest. I think I think he's going to be very effective as this as a lead in in introduction in, in, in matches, especially when Liverpool have a lead. Uh, that was the topic of my newsletter earlier in the week, actually. Just, if you look at Haaland's second goal, for example, against West Ham, City are 1-0 up. West Ham have to chase the game. As a result of chasing the game, they move higher up the pitch, commit more bodies forward, and it just opened up all kinds of space for Haaland to get them on the break, and he ends up scoring the signature goal. So I think a lot of Nunes' goals will come on the break, uh, late in matches, maybe. But despite that, I still think he's he's done more than enough in his past two appearances now to to really get a get an appearance from the start. Uh, massive handful causes havoc in the box, and despite only being on the pitch for forty minutes, only two players in the league this weekend accumulated more XG, and one of those was Pascal Gross, who obviously dominated Manchester United single handedly, and uh, the other one was Erling Carland, Both of them scored two. But as I said, third on the list was Nunes, despite playing 40 minutes. Um, Fourth on the list is Son Young-min. Fifth on the list is Martinelli. Sixth on the list is Mohamed Salah. All of those players played, all of those players started and they all played full 90 minutes except Haaland who came off on 77 minutes. So, you know, Nunes has just had a massive impact whenever he came on and Firmino was not great. So, I would have no issues with, with starting Nunes this weekend, I think it's it's time for that to happen and I think considering Thiago now out as well, uh, which we'll get to, maybe it opens up the possibility of doing a bit more of a switch as well and playing two midfielders, playing number 10 behind Nunes and just kind of keep Nunes in the, in the penalty box for the whole game against Palace basically.
0: Well, you saw in in the forty minutes that he played the game exactly what you you were sort of saying to expect through the course of the summer. Of he's a guy who just comes on and his sole focus is where where are the posts? I'm going to get the ball, and something is going to be sent towards it, whether it's a shot, whether it's I try and tee up an opposition, albeit maybe assists aren't quite his game. He did get one here for Mohamed Salah, probably more through luck than judgment of miscontrolling the ball that that fell to Salah who. Opportunistically, was in the right place to sweep it in, but he is a guy who, as soon as he gets onto the pitch, just all of a sudden, he, he, he's like a one-man XG generation machine, isn't he?
1: He is exactly that. Yeah, he's he's like a magnet, and his his movements is arguably his best trait. I've been really impressed by his movements. Um, you know, his his number of his number of shots so far for Liverpool in in the Community Shield friendlies and things like that. Second half appearances, he's just really in the shots whenever he's on the pitch. He's he, as I said, he's like a magnet. He's just hoovering up these shots, and I wouldn't be surprised. You know, maybe we can put a, put a note on this one, but I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the season, he's got more non-penalty goals than Salah, just because of how much he's hoovering up the chances when he's on the pitch and how he's that central leading man just obsessed with Sal- Salah's got a lot more to his game than Nunes, Salah can create and um, progress the ball and deeper the and things. I think Nunes is that finisher and I think Klopp will, will use him like that. So do you think-,
0: think Salah's game is going to change a bit with Nunez as well? I mean, Ian Doyle on our Blood Red podcast the other day was saying you forget Salah can crossable and how well he can do that. With with a player like Nunez in the team, all of a sudden, actually, is Salah's role maybe going to change a bit from become maybe a hybrid scorer and provider. I know he has registered a high volume of assists during his time at Liverpool already, but maybe not kind of classical assists that you think of kind of feeding the ball into a a main forward.
1: I think it has to change, yeah. I think he, he will naturally maybe spend a little bit more time out wide. He will probably naturally just become a little bit more of a creative source as opposed to being the man who finishes all the moves because you've kind of got a man now in the team who, who will do that uh, without doing much else, almost. Um, so if you, if you actually look at Salah's game now, I mean, in that 40-minute spell with Nunes, inside something like the first 10, 15 minutes, he created the same chance for Nunes, twice, I identical. But one of them he scored, first one to keeper made a save. But that, that early first-time ball from the wing to the near post, with Nunes already on his bike, because he's anticipating it, looks like it's going to be you know, a new pattern of play, if you like, for Liverpool to use, considering just Nunes is just such an expert mover when he's off the ball, and he's so quick as well, that he can just sneak in. And Salah's going to be threatening him behind and able to play those balls early because he's getting fed. So I think Liverpool will naturally change it a little bit. And I can see Liverpool fielding the number 10 a little bit more because Nunes doesn't really drop much. So it's going to be interesting to see how things work, but... I think, considering there's impact early on, it's it's. I, I really don't think you can go into the Palace game with Nunes on the bench.
0: No, interesting. Let's talk about the midfield. Then you said there, with Nunes in the team, you can maybe see a number ten coming into the play. I have to say, I'm of the opposite mind. I think the four-three-three will be the way Liverpool continue to go. But perhaps to feed into your point, not one number ten, but two in the the two wide midfielders, especially if Thiago is yeah. out. That those two players either side of Fabidio really get high. Thiago, obviously, it's not his his game. He does naturally sit deeper and pull the strings from there. But Jordan Henderson didn't have the greatest of games against Fulham, as we've already noted. It would probably be very uh, risky and very high high reward, high high risk, high reward for Jurgen Klopp to go for say Elliot and Carvalho in the same team together from the off but at home against Crystal Palace might well offer that opportunity. Equally, the likes of Nabi Keita, who's in the squad, Curtis Jones as well. It does feel as though Liverpool do have the profile of player actually there where they could play in a similar manner, a midfield setup to what Manchester City often do.
1: Yeah, it's a good shout, actually. It's it's something that, you know, further down the line, maybe a bit more in the future when they've, when they've matured a little bit. Maybe you could see th- those two number eights for Liverpool being a little bit like you know, the early Pep teams with with David Silver and Kevin De Bruyne because they, they were naturally referred to as number tens widely. You could probably say the same about Harvey Elliott and, and Carvalho, but they're both playing in number eight roles at times. They're both teenagers as well. So maybe further down the line, uh, they're they're gonna move into those roles and, and become a bit more a bit more like that. But overall I think Liverpool have options. You know, Liverpool there's different ways Liverpool can, can cope with Thiago's injury, but Obviously, a lot of the talk at the minute is to do with buying a new player, and I just find that talk a little bit frustrating. Personally, I think it's if you didn't think Liverpool needed a midfielder, a midfielder before Thiago's injury, you should probably think it now. It it should be a case of Liverpool, I get a midfielder full stop, and it and regardless, especially. Um, do you different think ways before- to solve this in the squad?
0: The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, before discussing kind of the, the potential of a, a player coming in, there's a couple of names I want to put your way in that regard. But do you think the midfield, if it were to change with Nunez playing higher and effectively unlocking those two number eights and, and letting them play higher, that that would, that would maybe actually enable Nabi to really show some consistency within his game? Because I'm, I'm not saying that... Roberto Firmino has prevented that from happening because he is able to link with him but so many of the the compilations the highlight reels what people were getting excited about Keita before he arrived at at Liverpool from Leipzig was how he was all action around the midfield yet actually it feels as though maybe the midfield in which he came into he was probably a little bit confined within. and if that midfield the space opens up there actually might see on a more consistent basis because we've we've clearly seen over his time at Liverpool some great performances. It's just been a lack of consistency from him, and albeit a caveat, it would saying I know he's injured at, at this moment in time.
1: Yeah, potentially. I mean, Nunes' introduction will, will impact the, the the dynamics in the midfield just because he he will play on the shoulder of opposing defenders. He will drag them back towards their own goal, and that will create space on the number 10 areas, basically. So there is naturally going to be space for Carvalho to use Elliot, Thiago, Henderson, Keita, whoever it wants to be, in those kind of, on the edge of the final third, in the centre and half spaces and things like that. There's going to be space to use there. But in terms of Keita, I don't know. I, I, for me, he's he's a very high-risk midfielder if you if you want to let him play his natural game. Because what his natural game is or was at least at Leipzig when he was becoming this star was he just kind of assumed possession in the middle of the park and just went and dribbled past everybody. And I think he's very good at doing it. And in the Bundesliga obviously he was deemed to be to be worth that risk. One of the team's main creators and things. But if you if you get him to do that in England, especially considering there's creative players around him in the team already in terms of like trends and salads and things like that getting catered to do that in the middle of the park when he could potentially lose the ball and immediately concede a uh, a counter attack I'm, I'm just never sure klopp has really considered that to be worthy uh, considering you can take risks other ways in the team without really suffering from counter attacks as easily um, I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if Liverpool move towards any kind of 4-2-3-1 because Keita did first emerge at Leipzig as part of a two. And I think it was, it might have been Diego Dem. I think is how you pronounce it. I think he was more of the holding player out of two. And Keita was the the man who occasionally joined the attack by carrying the ball forward. And I think if you put that in Liverpool context, it would be Fabinho sitting and K driving forward as part of it too, but I don't know. It's going to be that. There's yeah. multiple ways this can go really. Isn't
0: yeah, he's also obviously had four years at Liverpool now, hasn't he? And his injuries have, pr- have probably taken their, their tear, wear and tear on him in terms of that mobility, fluidity yeah. of of quite jinking around players and slaloming his way around challenges. But which is what one thing I wanted to, to to kind of get your opinion on. But in terms of names, then you mentioned one solution that a lot of people were obviously jumping to. We're still in August, 20 days left of the transfer window is potentially bringing players in now. Mateus Nunes of Sporting Lisbon has been linked with the club. Is he the profile of midfielder that would would suit into maybe the direction Liverpool are travelling? And another who really intrigues me is Nicolo Barella of Inter Milan.
1: Yeah, well, I wouldn't be surprised if if Liverpool have insisted on in both of those players. I think the, 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 the club do like both? I think, especially Barella. You know, for some reason, <laughs> they like to. Klopp and Linders in particular seems to sort of hope like he's our own player sometimes. Um but I think he's just got kind of a bit difficult to acquire in terms of leaving in Milan, and I think he's on a fairly lengthy contract of me yeah, I think he's
0: got I think he's got three years left. I think.
1: Yeah, okay. Well maybe with players like that it makes sense to wait until I've got two years left before making a move just to save a bit of money, basically. Like we like we seem to be doing with Bellingham. Um Nunes is another good player. I do like the look of him. I think he 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 would probably be a, a sensible Liverpool target. Seems to be contracted until twenty twenty six, which is another four years. But the issue is that he's got a release clause. Uh, some people have said forty million. Someone said fifty. Someone said sixty. So God knows what that is. But twenty three years old, Portuguese league, which we know Liverpool are fan are big fans of. Um, centre midfield, really capable, really well rounded. I can see Nunes but I can't see I believe the club basically when they say this summer it's it's not going to happen I I believe what they're saying I don't think it's uh, you know a, a red red flag or anything like that
0: Yeah no Barella just looked at his contract he's 26 as well so four years left on on his deal so as as you previously said, those deals can be notoriously difficult to do. I mean, would it it would leave Liverpool maybe with a bit of an undertaking next summer? Obviously, awaiting whether or not Naby Keita is going to sign a new contract. Harvey Elliott today has agreed a new contract with Liverpool. James Milner's into the final twelve months of his deal. So too is Alex Oxlade Chamberlain. I mean, if Cater were to move on as as well as. Oxlade, Chamberlain and Milner at the end of the season. And that's all hypothetical. That would be three going out. Yes, it would probably create more room and more more game time for the likes of Jones, Carvalho and Elliott to absorb. But surely there's going to need to probably be at least one, if not two additions in that midfield. And is that not quite some undertaking to do to a midfield, given it, it seems to be a midfield that is creaking at either either age of the, the age spectrum. There's a number of players over 30 or around the 30 mark, and then there's a number of young kids. Do you, do you, do you see where yeah. I'm coming from? It feels to me as though somebody needs to step in in prime years of their career in there.
1: Yeah, you need a player kind of in the middle, I suppose, don't you? Who's not quite yeah. a teenager and, and not quite over the hill. Uh, yeah, just, just to be clear, I, I do think Liverpool need a midfielder. You know, that's pretty obvious. M- my big thing is just, First of all, I trust the club and, and how the club recruits. And my big thing has always been if if the right player isn't there, don't don't force it by, by going and getting somebody who is just gonna plug a hole, basically, and rule you out of signing a better player in a future window, for example. Like if Liverpool were to go and get Ruben Neves <laughs> off the top of my head. Yeah. And that prevents you from getting Matthias Nunes next summer or Nico Benalla next summer, or Jude Bellingham next summer. I would rather Liverpool wait, personally, because you over a long period of time, you are healthier, and you are better, if you have better players. So, although Liverpool might be a bit more, kind of, protected for the next season, if you go and get a player like Neves, or a midfield, midfielder from somewhere, or whatever, it's, it's just got to be the right player for me. Like, I, a few, few weeks ago, Liverpool were linked with uh, Sangare of PSV. Yep. And I spoke about how I think that could be a possibility. I've looked at him before, I like him, I can see him being Liverpool target and things. But Liverpool have obviously deemed him to be good, but not good enough for, for Liverpool or whatever, or the price has not been right or whatever. So if if Liverpool aren't moving, it, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's probably for the right reason.
0: I mean, we'll have people listening to this screaming, saying... Well, back on the 1st of January 2021, Liverpool were top of the Premier League at that time. They were, albeit City, had two games in hand. They were a good seven points clear of Manchester City at that point. So if they won their games in hand, there was only a point difference between the two sides. But they didn't strengthen the defence. They saw the defensive crisis get worse and then brought in the likes of Ozan Kabak and Ben Davis, who between them obviously didn't feature all too much and... In the end, it it didn't really work out. Liverpool managed the situation to have parachuted even further down the the league to rescue Champions League qualification, but never continued where they were at on New Year's Day, as I say, when that transfer window opened. But equally, in the long term, it did work out because they got the man they wanted in Ibrahima Kanate. They put together another 90-plus point season and they got to a Champions League final. They played every game they could have done. When I remember at the time, Sven Bottmann was the man that a lot of people were were clamouring for Liverpool to go and sign. There was no guarantee that would have that would have necessarily worked out.
1: Exactly. And, you know, Liverpool, I think most fans would look at Kanate and be like, OK, sad. You know, Liverpool have got it right there. He's a top prospect. Could be as good as he wants by the time he's 28, 27. Uh, he's gonna be a top top player. Liverpool got him with something like 35 million. Absolute snippets. You know, Man United have just paid 50 million for, for, for a lad who's five foot nine at the back. Kukadela's just gone for sixty million. So Canate is a brilliant sign. So in that situation, the, the big thing is like p- people look at football on a season by season basis. And, and it's like a it's like a finite game, like 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 the world is gonna end by the end of the season. So you make your transfers to protect you or to prepare you for that season and that season, almost. When in reality, football's an infinite game. Football keeps going. It's an ongoing experience. It's It's constant. So if Liverpool are still going to be playing football next year and the year after and the year after, it makes sense to just keep getting the right well- players in. I know know over the last
0: few years we've spoken a lot about Manchester United and their poor recruitment and squad building. But this time last year, they went chips in on Varane, on Cristiano Ronaldo. Jaden Sancho had looked like it was as though their recruitment had had been going towards getting smarter and they'd finished second in the Premier League. But then all of a sudden, with two deals in Varane and Cristiano Ronaldo, and albeit fantastic players during their time at, at Real Madrid and had won a number of Champions Leagues together within that side. They weren't what that team needed and albeit it was a very short-term experiment that Manchester United went for and now very much paying the price for it given, as you say, just how much they spent on Martinez last summer. They've, what, over the last three years brought in Maguire, Varane and Martinez. There might be four seasons in those three where they've they've brought in those players. I might be doing the Maguire deal a disservice in terms of actually when it was done. But you know the point I'm, I'm making in that regard of just how quickly they've gone through money throwing money at a, a problem when actually they're only exacerbating it rather than actually dealing with the, the situation they have.
1: Yeah, and when you get in these players, they just occupy spaces in the squad that a a player from outside who you're, who you're also interested in, who's potentially better, could have occupied. So this is why it makes sense to just, to, to always wait for the right man, essentially, to, to make the right sign every time. Because if you get it wrong, or if you sign a player who's all right, but he's not particularly great or anything like that, he's just occupying a space in your squad, and it just blocks. Like, say, for example, if Liverpool... Um, if Liverpool went and signed Timo Werner a few years ago, who is fine, by the way. You know, I, I still think he's a, a good player, and I think he would have done well at Liverpool. But if Liverpool went and signed Timo Werner a few years ago, Liverpool this summer probably wouldn't have went and got Nunes because they both played through the middle. Really, they're both kind of like the similar types in a, in a way. So you know, Verner could have been good enough for us to want, for us to never want Nunes, and, and Nunes might end up being a flop. You know, God knows. But what, what I'm getting at is the the transfers that you make now will will have a massive impact on on who you can get further down the line and. If, if I just don't want Liverpool to, to ever... Liverpool are in a too much of a healthy position right now to, to force it, like uh, like someone like Man United for example. They, they clearly need players. that They are clearly desperate for a bit of an overhaul there. Liverpool, are, as much as people would argue against this, Liverpool are in a really healthy place at the moment. They've got a, a wealth of midfielders. They're just not always particularly fit. But there's a, a number of options in there. So I don't think Liverpool are in a position where they need to go and sign some form of stopgap like Saul guess you know, who joined Chelsea last season and just didn't do anything for a full season. You know, I, don't, I, I just, I've never wanted Liverpool to go down that route personally.
0: The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. You'd rather see someone like Carvalho maybe pushed in a little bit earlier than expected, but knowing he's got the quality to deal with it, to actually see if he does develop a bit quicker than perhaps expected but before we go let's talk about the game on Monday night Crystal Palace heading to Anfield the first home game of the Premier League season for Liverpool Josh Palace obviously opened up the Premier League season being beaten by Arsenal at Sellers Park what are you expecting from them they seem a bit of a different proposition from last season given Colin Gallagher who was such an influential part of their midfield is now back at Chelsea
1: yeah, well, I, I do like Palace, I'll be honest. Uh, I, I think they're a the top club, and I think uh, the recruitment that they generally are doing since probably last summer has been really good. I like the players that have got in, in terms of the core, especially. I watched the game against Arsenal. I thought they were OK. I thought Arsenal probably deserved to win. I'm not sure it was a 2-0. A, a I thought Palace might have snuck one. I thought uh, Anderson was very good at the back. Really impressed with him, and those long diagonal passes in the direction of Zaha could cause a problem for Trent in those because it, it'll result in 1v1s, really. And, and Zaha's difficult to deal with 1v1. Um, I mean, have you got any info to pass on, mate? I'm sure you, you was a keen watcher of the game.
0: Yeah, no, in, in terms of what they did, I thought do you think th- it was I a thought, deserved 2 0. I, I do because I think first half I thought Arsenal were in complete domination until yeah. Aaron Ramsdale. Just changed the the course of the game, dwelling on a on a pass back to him just before halftime. Palace came into it second half. I thought Palace had a lot of the ball, but I thought Arsenal shepherded them around the pitch very well. I'm struggling to really note and remember any clear cut opportunities for Palace where you thought, right, that was where they could have got the goal. I, I'm I'm a keen believer teams can control a ball without a game by shepherding the opposition around the pitch, and I thought yeah. with Saliba at the back, I thought Arsenal did that expertly well. But in terms of Palace, I think that clinical edge at the top end of the pitch is maybe something they miss. I think they have the chaos factor with John philippe Mateta, but I don't think at Anfield he's, he'll, he'll probably, should Van Dyke and Matip look after him correctly, won't really be able to get into the game. I think odson Edward is, is decent without really fully convincing at that top end of the pitch. And as you say, I think the danger man is Wilfred Zaha. And I think Trent Alexander-Arnold will be able to to really lay to rest that idea that a he's not a great one on one defender trent alexander-arnold is is also a fantastic covering defender any balls put into space he often wins the foot race and he's the last man back there for liverpool which is is something that i think a lot of people just forget and conveniently forget about his defensive abilities i remember a couple of years ago it was it was james milner up against Zaha, wasn't it? And that was a torrid afternoon for James Milner. I remember reading his book and he even wrote in that that Zaha's the, the, kind of the best one-on-one player he's come up against for a long, long time and really did struggle that day. But I think Liverpool have enough to contain and, and control the threats Palace have. And it will be a case of seeing what that midfield is without Tiago. And just seeing how Liverpool go up, go about breaking them down. I mean, without wanting to be disrespectful, I, I personally, I don't know about you, but would ex, would be expecting Liverpool to come out with a, a point to prove, and therefore should lead to something you would hope that would be fairly routine under the lights at Anfield as well. Should the crowd should really be up for it?
1: Yeah, well, that was what I was going to say. I think it's maybe a little bit cliche, but you would you would expect a massive response in, in comparison to Fulham. You know, Klopp was not happy in, in any way, shape or form. The players won't have been either. So I do expect a reaction. I think Nunes will, will get his, his proper Anfield debut. As you say, it'll be a night game. So, um, you know, there'll be plenty of atmosphere around the game. City might even be five points clear of Liverpool already. By, that, by the time that game comes down, he probably will be considering they've got Bournemouth at the Etihad. So it's, I mean... It's obviously daft to start talking about must win games already, but you just can't be letting Pep Guardiola, especially, start steal a match when you're so early. So this is quite a quite an important game, really. I mean, I rate Palace. Liverpool did not win the first game when they should have. City are probably going to go into this uh, Palace game with, with two wins behind them. So it's it's quite an important game, and Liverpool needs to be really on it in, in this match. What um,
0: would you do with the midfield? Just out of interest, what would you? Obviously, Thiago's injured. New, news flash: I, I, I mean, I wouldn't expect Liverpool to to have anyone signed or, or 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 thrown straight into the team, even if it were to happen. But it will be the options they've got. Cater obviously has been suffering; seems to be carrying a knock himself, and and Thiago out as well. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain on the injury list already too. So maybe not all too many options, but probably is it a, a straight shootout between Carvalho and, and Elliot?
1: Well, this is a different one This because there's, there's so many different uh, elements to the game that I'm weighing up in my head. So I would be really tempted to go four two three one 2 3 one because we now don't have Thiago. I think Henderson is probably a better six than the an eight. And if he was to play in a 4 2 three, one he would be allowed to just kind of play within his limitations almost. Liverpool have Carvalho, Elliott and Firmino as ten options. And Nunes doesn't drop into those spaces. So I think I'm, I'm well a home. So I think the option for four two three one one is right there now. Having said that, Zaha is a problem. And... You're probably going to have to double up on, and if you're doubling up on them, that means you probably want number eight on the pitch, so that Henderson can kind of shuffle over, basically, and support yeah. Trent. Um, the issue with that is if Henderson kind of then probably has to play on that side, um, which means that the left-sided midfield spot where Thiago usually plays is going to be the one that's open, and that's the one that Elliot doesn't usually occupy. Elliot usually plays on Salah's side of the pitch. So maybe it's going to be Carvalho, considering that. Maybe it's going to be exactly the same as Fulham, but Carvalho in place of Thiago. But then you have... I i, I like the thought of Elliot playing. You know, Is it a coincidence that he just got a new contract? That maybe it's a bit of a kind of like a you're the man now type thing.
0: On the 4-2-3-1 chat with Thiago not playing as well, and I know it's a nuance, but that's, that's what we're here to do, is talk about those nuances, is... How much of a difference do you think it would be though for Fabinho who has taken not so long but for so long now at Liverpool after transitioning for a while getting used to playing as a single pivot going into a double pivot if Thiago's there I get it he can occupy that left-hand side of the pitch moving out to the left is natural to him that's what he does in the 4-3-3 but if it's Henderson and Fabinho which one of those are you putting on the left-hand side of the partnership and is that part of their natural game and does it affect the, the defensive structure or even the attacking progression of of getting the, the play started of just drifting out to that side and supporting Robertson or occupying those areas of the pitch?
1: Yeah, I think I think Fabinho will will generally be okay personally. You know, he he does have a few years behind him playing in the double pivot. And although it's although it would mean he's now playing with a partner his actual role wouldn't change that much in terms of he would still occupy those deeper areas, provide a bit more of a a, a governing figure from deep, just putting out fires and things like that and letting other players play. It would almost be a bit more of a change for Henderson, really, because Henderson would go from, you know, occupying high spaces in the final third, box to box, a um, little bit of responsibility to create. He'd go from that to kind of just overseeing everybody else to do their thing in the final third, almost. So, but having said that, I think the two of them could operate as a pair, and I think Liverpool would be fine. Maybe for this game in particular, if you do do that, maybe you put Fabinho on the, the right side of the pairing, because that's the side that Zaha's has on, so it's, yeah. it's more threatening, obviously. Um, But I'm not sure if, uh, if Palace are playing with a number 10 at the minute. In Eze, is Eze playing as number 10 or is he playing as an 8? Because if he's playing as a 10, that would mean he'd play right behind a double pivot for Liverpool, which I suppose could be a problem. But these are all the things that you know Klopp has to weigh up in his decision making. But it's, it's not ideal that Tiago's out, but there's plenty of internal ways of solving this. I'm just not really sure what he'll go for.
0: Yeah, so Palace, Eze did play as a 10 against Arsenal, There, Jeffrey Jeffrey Schlappen. De is kind of deeper midfield players albeit Schlupp was kind of shuttling around and trying to get up and support Eze in building attacks and De was kind of anchoring that midfield but yeah it will be interesting right before we, we wrap up then prediction time Josh, what's the score going to be?
1: Um, I do rate Palace but I think after Liverpool's start I think they almost have no choice but to be right on it for this game so I'm going to say 3-0, Three 0 but yeah, I wouldn't have say... I wouldn't have said that if Liverpool won last week.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say two 0 I think it will. I think Liverpool will do it. I think they. I think they'll just have too much for for Palace in the end, and we will have to to win. Are you gonna,
1: Are you going to captain me? <laughs>
0: the Egyptian King. And not not you told me earlier. Not not Jesus. Lesson learned. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. And Captain Jesus, there is again, for those watching, and I'll, I'll read it out for those listening, our uh, analysing Anfield Fantasy Premier League code is 8s 72 G1. It will also be in the description. If you do want to join, albeit as a latecomer, we are looking to to see if we can get the league up to 500 people and by the end of the season, see if I can finish in 500th place. We'll have to wait and see if that is (laughs) how things do play out. But from myself, Guy Clark and Josh Williams, thanks for joining us on this edition of Analyzing Anfield. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.